Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Before we talk to Lee Anderson, let's check in uh, with the Parliamentary Committee, uh, before which sits Mr Dominic Cummings, the former Chief Advisor to the Prime Minister. Let's have a listen. Which the minutes say you were at. Um, now, at that point on the 5th of March, it was five weeks since the WHO had said COVID was a public health emergency of international concern, and countries like China, Taiwan, Korea, even Australia and New Zealand were starting to lock their borders down, set up test and trace programmes, yeah. stop mass events. But the minutes of that 5th of March meeting say that the only measures recommended were shielding the vulnerable and elderly. At that point on the 5th of March, did you advise the Prime Minister that SAGE was wrong? No, I didn't. Um, uh, So I was ringing ringing increasing alarm bells in the first half of March. Um, But... I had a sort of my 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 thought process was so I started getting people coming to me round about the twenty fifth of February saying very smart people saying to me um, America is completely screwing this up um, you should be really aggressive don't listen to all these people saying that you know there's no alternative to this um, I personally am starting to take. Uh, preparations, I'm buying things, we're going to have to lock down, etc, etc. But the official view all the way through the first half of of March, and actually into the week of the 16th of March, was that that would all be more dangerous. Now, my mindset was, I I was really torn about the whole thing, because in the, in the first 10 days of March, I, I I was increasingly being told by people, I think this is going wrong. But I was also really, really worried about kind of like smashing my hand down on a, on a massive button marked, um, you know, ditch the official plan, stop listening to the official plan. I think that there's something going wrong. Now, I did do that, as we'll come on to, but around about the 5th, I was still reluctant to do that, and we were exploring lots of different things that were going on. So just to be clear, that was two weeks before the, the Champions League event in Liverpool, the Cheltenham Gold Cup... Yes. And you didn't, at that point, advise that those mass participation sports events should be cancelled? No. And in fact, our official advice at the time was, and this shows the kind of logic at play, that the, the official advice at the time was, doing that, A, won't really make much difference to transmission, which seems obviously bizarre in retrospect, that the idea that we would keep having mass events going on through this whole thing. Um, but also, secondly, it could be actively bad 
because you'll just push people into pubs. And of course, no one in the, in the kind of official system in the Department of Health drew the obvious logical conclusion, which was, well, shouldn't we be shutting all the pubs as well? The, the kind of, at, the, at this point, round about the fifth, the logic was, oh yeah, well obviously given we're not going to be closing pubs and closing retail and closing leisure and all of this, then I sort of see the point of the official advice. Because if you're not going to do those things, it, it, it does have a logic to it. Now, of course, the logic itself was completely flawed, but that's what the thinking was around the 5th of March. So let's talk about the weekend when the plan did change. So this morning you tweeted a picture of a whiteboard from the Prime Minister's study of what you call Plan B, and you said you showed that to him on the morning of Saturday, the 14th of March. Yeah. Was that the moment that you told him for the first time that the scientific consensus, as we saw in those earlier SAGE meetings, was wrong? Um, no, it wasn't the first time. So um, I... Uh, um, the, uh, so the data scientist Ben Warner was working in number 10. His brother, coincidentally and, and thankfully, was working with the NHS um, to help the NHS with uh, building a whole data system and data dashboard to deal with, with COVID. Um, he came to me on the 7th of March and he had been in various meetings about the official plan. And he said to me, I'm really, really worried about this. It seems to me that people, um, this plan could easily be mad. It could be incredibly destructive. Like, has this really been tested? Have you really thought it all through? Um, you know, should I and some others start thinking about Plan B? But when did you tell the Prime Minister that we needed to change direction? So on the morning of the 12th, right. um, I said... Um, well, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of different things. But the I morning could, I, of the 12th, that's a Thursday, wasn't it? it was that, Thursday. that was the first time you told the Prime Minister... The scientific consensus. Jeremy Hunt, who of course ran for leadership of the Conservative Party against Boris Johnson, quizzing um, Dominic Cummings there, trying to find out exactly what he knew, when he knew it. Uh, it sounds rather like uh, it was all a bit of a panic at the beginning in March um, and when nobody really knew what on earth was going on. Dominic Cummings attempting to tell them that basically he was getting warnings continually um, that they'd have to start shutting everything down, uh, that the lockdown was necessary and yet it wasn't done. Um, I'm not quite sure what point he's going to end up making here, but let's talk to Lee Anderson, Conservative MP for Ashfield, who joins us now. Lee, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, I'm not quite sure what your view is of Dominic Cummings, but I mean... I'm not entirely certain what he's doing today, why he's doing it, what he's hoping to achieve um, and why he's already said, for example, uh, that he's sorry to the families whose, um, whose relatives may have died unnecessarily. Yeah, it's a strange one, Mark. I mean, I'm really interested to see what the, what the outcome is today. But isn't it funny that certain parts of the media uh, were actually uh, highlighting the fact that uh, just over a year ago, he was probably the biggest liar in the country. Yeah. Uh, and now they're hanging on to every word he says. Yes, uh, how it, strange. It, it, it's very, very strange indeed. So very interesting. Let's see what he has to say. I sort of suspect that he could be the, the boy who cried wolf. Well, this is the thing. I mean, because one, he's already said that it was partly his fault as well. So he's kind of thrown himself under a bit of a bus here um, while attempting to take everyone else with him, it seems to me. And I mean, my view of it uh, is that, you know, it's all very well having, um, you know, retrospective views on what you should have done, what you could have done, what you might have done. Um, but it's not incredibly helpful uh, at this moment in time. 
it is not helpful. Maybe you should get a job with Captain Hindsight. But I tell you what, Mike, uh, the great British public do not like behaviour like this. They see through it. Um, if you had something to say, why didn't you say it at the time? Yeah. It's all well and good saying it a year later, you know, a, a year into the pandemic. It's not going down well. And I think he's lost a, what bit of trust he had mm. uh, with the British public. Uh, they don't look at it with, with any sort of great fondness at all. So let's no. see what he has to say. I mean, I did uh, say I did say a bit earlier to Julie Hartley Brewer, it's time he got a new job and sort of moved on. But I'm not sure you'd employ him, would you, knowing what you know about him? Well, no, I mean, especially in politics, but any job, Mark, you know, one of the biggest things in any sort of uh, industry is trust. Yeah. Uh, and, and quite clearly, there is no trust there. You, you, honestly, you, I wouldn't give him a job. Uh, I wouldn't give him a job, you know, sweeping the streets, to be honest, <laughs> because he'd probably be shopping his boss every 10 minutes. Well, exactly right. That's the problem. Now, we wanted to talk to you uh, about the BBC as well, because uh, rather uh, interestingly, you got up this week in the House and declared that you were no longer a fan of the BBC. In fact, you called it rotten uh, and you've torn up your TV licence. Tell us why. Well, I, I tore that up last, last year. Mm. Um, I've seen, you know, over the years, you know, growing up like, Probably you, Mike, in, in the uh, in the seventies and eighties, yeah. the BBC was always a place of comfort. It's, mm. it's something we watched, we trusted. You know, we watched News Round, Granger, Blue Peter, all these sort of brilliant things. We felt safe, we felt comfortable, knowing that Anti B was looking over us. But that's changed. That's changed massively over the years. And actually, I think the BBC have become this nation's official opposition yeah. uh, to government. You know, Labour Party are quite useless at the moment. So at every single opportunity, we've seen it through the pandemic, we've seen it through Brexit. All they do is beat a drum to oppose. They're anti-government, they're anti-British, they're anti-everything. They're mm. not anti beep anymore. I've had enough. I've thrown my licence away. Uh, and like I said before, if, if the BBC send the heavies round to my house to get told to clear off, we're going to have to Gary Lineker's house. He's got plenty of money. Let him pay for some TV licence fees. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, the other thing as well is that we find out uh, this week that Martin Bashir, uh, who we were told had left the BBC uh, with much kind of, you know, um, secrecy, is still actually being paid. Now, it turns out it's one of those niceties of a contract. He's resigned. I'm sorry, you know, in my world, if I resign from a job, you don't get to be paid a period of notice because you've resigned. They say, well, we didn't have to give him a payoff, so we let him resign. Well, why is he still getting paid for three months? Well, I mean, what a despicable creature he is, this this Martin Bashir. Maybe he should uh, get a job with Dominic Cummings, probably set up their own <laughs> PR for him, yeah, something like absolutely. that. I mean, I mean who would employ these two? Yeah. Yeah, I mean. How to destroy, how to destroy uh, a company from within. That could be their selling point. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, though, Mike, isn't it? You know, you've got uh, this, this Bashir character, uh, utterly dis despicable what he did 25 years ago. The BBC know what he did, you know, a bit like Jimmy Savile, they knew what he was up to. Mm. And then they, you know, they rehire him. Um, I mean, should the British taxpayer be paying for this? You know, at the moment, I, can, I can't think of any other national broadcasting association anywhere in the world that's taxpayer funded mm. that is so anti their own country. Utterly oh, it really is. And what would you like to see, Lee? Because I've been calling this week for at least a very proper parliamentary inquiry, a proper kind of parliamentary committee, a bit like the one that Dominic Cummings is currently sitting in front of. So get the BBC executives in, ask them some hard questions, some tough questions, and make sure that they know that their jobs are on the line. Yeah, I, I, I entirely agree. I agree with the Taxpayers Alliance when they say that uh, we should decriminalise non-payment of the BBC licence. I know there's a like a mid-term review next year. I want this to be debated as well in Parliament. I love the idea of a committee. You know, there is there's a real uh, there's a real passion for this in Parliament at the moment, especially in the red wall seats. There's some of the the old guard that's not entirely 
on board with this, but they need to get out more and go and speak to some people in places like Ashfield, where I represent. And I tell you what, I've done several polls since being elected on this. Mm. Thousands of people have taken part, and over 90% believe the licence fee should be scrapped yeah. and we should have a subscription fee. I don't want to pay for this rubbish anymore, Mike. No, quite. And don't you also think that it should be kind of broken up in a way, because it's too big, really, to be managed in the way uh, it is being managed by sort of one board, because you've got the news department over here, and then on the other hand, you've got all these entertainment shows, you've got drama yeah. commissioning off, You've got, you know, all sorts of quiz shows being made since 75 different channels, you know, 68 different radio stations. You know, I think they need to take a view that the old fashioned startup of the BBC is so long ago now that it's not relevant. I think you're absolutely right, Matt. I think they're trying to take over the world if they're not already. I mean, the ones I feel sorry for, I mean, let's not forget this. There are some good parts to the BBC. Mm. You know, in my area, we've got some good local uh, TV and radio stations that are pretty fair, if I'm honest. Uh, but it's people like those that are suffering at the moment through that, that global brand mm. of the BBC. That's unfair. And you're quite right. They seem to have their fingers in all sorts of pies. And over the years, there's one scandal after another with the BBC and we keep trusting them. And they're not the cuddly anti-Beeb that, that we actually think they are. They, In some cases, quite despicable, some of the actions, some things that the employees have done. And like I said, you know, people in this country should have a choice on whether or not they pay for this service. If yeah. they like the BBC, fair enough. You know, go and pay you 160 quid. Uh, a year or whatever it is for the BBC, but don't make everybody, everybody in this country pay for it. No, I mean, less the uh, benevolent auntie uh, than the sort of wicked stepmother from uh, from Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> you know, but no doubt you're not supposed to say that anymore. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the woke brigade because I see, um, I keep looking forward to a moment when the wokists kind of get sent back to wherever it was they came from and told to get lost. I'm happy to see the National Trust has managed to get rid of their chief the chairman of the National Trust, a guy by the name of Tim Parker, because there was a vote of no confidence in him for trying to re, uh, reshoot everything that the National Trust did. You know, this is the guy who wanted to bring along, um, you know, a review of all of the houses that they run, a review of all of the statues at all of those houses, and he wanted to put up sort of different pieces of information about how horrible all the people were her, who were historical figures who lived in those houses. Well, 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 here's another character that can go and join Dominic uh, and Bashir. They could, I mean, this consultancy is growing by the minute, Mike. We could have all sorts of characters in there. Uh, but no, seriously, I mean, this this is a bit of a victory for us in the common sense group. We've been campaigning on this, right. and we are kicking back. And you know what, Mike? The silent majority in this country are the ones that always um, decide the outcomes of general elections. Yeah. And we are kicking back. We are the voice of the silent majority, and this, this is a little victory. But I tell you... This morning, um, there's still the woke brigade hanging around outside Parliament. I was verbally assaulted this morning Wait. by Brexit Steve. Yeah, Brexit Steve verbally assaulted me outside Parliament, called me a lying Tory scumbag. But actually, what he doesn't know, that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me this week. <laughs> well, poor old Steve, you know, he's a bit like Femi. He doesn't really have anywhere to go. He doesn't know what to stand for anymore because they lost the fight about Brexit. Uh, they don't really find any more people than, than about sort of half a dozen standing on the street corner that actually agree with them anymore. You know, even the worst of the Ramonas have actually worked out that we're never going to rejoin it. And it's actually not going too badly. Well, he's actually, he's rebranded himself as Stop Brexit, Steve, now. But I pointed out to him last week when I had a, 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 a bit of a chat with him. Mm. He actually needs to go and get a proper job. He does. Know, because this, this country is struggling. We need everybody back at work as soon as possible. And rather than hanging around or lurking around on street corners, shouting nonsense to a megaphone, go mm. and get a job and contribute towards society. Yeah, absolutely. Pay some tax as well. That might help for a start. 
Yeah, great idea. Absolutely right. So, I mean, as far as today's doings are concerned, we've got Prime Minister's questions coming up, Lee. Captain Hindsight, you mentioned earlier, I see that he's now changed tack uh, on his uh, popularity. He's decided the best thing to do now is not to actually go up and down the country finding out what people want him to do, uh, but it's to go on Piers Morgan's life stories and burst into tears. Well, I mean, I'm not sure how this is going to pan out, you know, in, in, in places like Ashfield, you know, going on TV. You know, you've got to remember, we are a, a working class area, that, you know, all the red wall seats that the Labour are trying to work back. I'm not sure how, how secure going on national TV, you know, bursting out tears is going to pan out. I suspect not very well, you know. Nothing wrong with a grown man crying, Mike. But, you know, I, I sort of think that my voters will see through that a little bit. Yes. It, it, it's a poor attempt to get popularity. I tell you what, if you want to be popular in places like Ashfield, start and do what the Conservative Party has done in these areas and actually listen to people, what they want, like getting Brexit done, like getting tough on law and order, mm. sort of immigration, that stuff like If you listen to your voters uh, and start to deliver on them on them promises, if you like, then actually you might stand a small chance. But at the moment, Labour Party have got a 20-year project on their hands. Well, I can't believe they've even dropped further behind in the polls. I think it's 18 points behind they are now, which is unbelievable. Even reform have gone up 2%. Well, it's pathetic. I mean, I see last week was talking about doing a deal with the Green Party. Well, good luck with that, Mike. That's an extra one seat in Parliament. That yeah. will get you. <laughs> uh, they need to do more. They need to engage. And quite frankly, I don't know how they re-engage with, with the public, with the uh, the Red Wall voters they lost in 2019. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, Lee, great to talk to you. A pleasure as ever. Lee Anderson, MP, Conservative MP for Ashfield, of course, the voice of Common Sense, member of the Common Sense group of MPs uh, in the House of Commons. But let us face it, um, I think the Woke Brigade could be on the run here, uh, even though he says that uh, Brexit Steve is still on the lash down at Parliament Square with his uh, huge megaphone shouting at Tories and being generally obnoxious and ghastly uh, and quite repellent as an individual, I have to say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, let's talk, however, to somebody far more sensible. Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network. Brendan, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. Very, very uh, pleased to be able to get you on. Um, we want to talk a little bit about this local lockdown sort of nonsense in a moment. But what, what's your what's your initial take on Dominic Cummings? I'm not quite sure what he's doing, really. Well, I've been watching uh, the recording of it uh, just prior to coming on in anticipation. You, we might be speaking about it today as, it, as, it's, a, as it's a quiet <laughs> news day. <Yeah. laughs> but, um, I think uh, clearly uh, this is a, an appearance before the committee uh, timed, I think, to take place before this proper inquiry begins. Uh, he's laying out all his evidence, all his position, mm. uh, because I think when the proper public inquiry does take place, um, the proverbial will hit the fan. Yes. Um, and uh, what's very interesting, though, is that this was a man who was at the centre of the British government throughout the most you know, intense period uh, during this pandemic. Mm. And he's openly admitted uh, the government has failed, uh, that our system of uh, dealing with these things is completely wrong, mm -hmm. and that during the midst of this uh, pandemic and issues to do with Trump, uh, half of Downing Street was devoted towards responding to a Times headline about the Prime Minister's dog, yes. uh, which just shows uh, things <laughs> in perspective. I mean, well, it does, good, good I mean, the, the yeah. picture he paints of Downing Street in March is one of sort of everybody standing around looking at each other going, what should we do now then? You know, it didn't sound as if there was anybody actually taking charge of it, which is completely against the narrative that at the time uh, old Dominic Cummings was putting out. He was trying to make out to tell everybody that he was really in charge and he was actually pulling the strings and everyone was doing what he said because he was such a genius. 
but I'm not sure yeah. he is. I think he's so much of a genius, he's starting to disappear up his own backside. Well, we, we've got in Mr Cummings an individual who thinks he's a genius. Mm. Uh, we had in uh, Boris Johnson a prime minister who believed he was Churchill reincarnated. And it turns out that actually what we've got is a complete mess uh, at the top of government <laughs> and not a sort of warlike spirit and warlike attitude towards this pandemic. Um, I do think, uh, obviously, you know my views on, on lockdown, Mike, as your listeners, um, but certainly one thing that has uh, defined uh, this government's uh, position throughout the course of this pandemic is inaction at critical times, yes. dither and delay. Uh, whatever your position on lockdowns, for heaven's sake, at least have a position, make it and stick to it and do it in good order and in good time. Mm. And in a rather perverse turn of, uh, of a twist of fate, if you like, um, here I look at the front page of The Times this morning uh, in preparation for the Dominic Cummings hearings. And there's a picture of Boris with his dog running um, <laughs> uh, with a story saying Johnson takes the lead on stiffer sentences for dog nappers. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up, could you? Well, it's um, it's a wonderful eccentric article about a wonderful eccentric <laughs> nation, uh, you know, in the middle of all that's going on. Yeah. The priority is the prime minister yeah. walking his dog. I mean, there but we I, go. But I think the bottom line here, Brendan, as well, is that you know as well as I do in the world of politics, perception is all right. The perception of Boris Johnson as a bit of a, a sort of bumbling but reasonably likable character will still, I think, come through. Whereas Dominic Cummings just comes across as a bit of a Machiavellian sort of Prince of Darkness figure um, who's not very trusted. I think so. And uh, one of the interesting things, of course, is uh, that during the midst of all this, when you would have thought a special advisor would be advising his prime minister uh, and other members of the cabinet, he had time to update his very extensive blog. Um, and it seems to me that if your sole focus as an advisor and indeed as a government mm. uh, is on dealing with a pandemic, trying to keep the economy afloat and everything else that hits the government on a minute by minute basis, uh, your priority should not be inserting thousands of words into a blog, uh, your own personal blog, in government time and on paid yeah. time. I also seem to remember back in the mists of time, and I know that most politicians say things that they don't actually then do. I thought Dominic Cummings was leaving government as soon as they got Brexit done. And that didn't happen. And if it was eventually forced out by Carrie, it would seem, uh, which he's obviously never forgiven her for. Yes, quite. I mean, I, I think he said, didn't he, when he was appointed uh, and, of course, when he, he famously walked out of the number 10 door when he left, uh, that he would be staying until Brexit was done. But he turned out to be there a lot longer uh, than was actually necessary. Um, one thing uh, was clear, though, was um, Cummings was a very influential and very powerful figure uh, within the government. Mm. Uh, however, uh, you know, I don't think the government's measures uh, on the economy have been anywhere near satisfactory. I think the lockdown uh, position uh, for businesses and for communities have been a disaster. So if this was the advice being given to the prime minister, you know, crash the country's economy, it really makes one wonder about the whole value of these well-paid special advisors that you and I and everybody else in this country pays for uh, through our taxes and mm. whether we need a complete overhaul of how this country's run. Yes, there seems to be an awful lot of them and they travel in and out of Downing Street like sort of, you know, postmen. You know, one minute they're in, next minute they're out, then they're back in again. You know, it seems an extraordinary state of affairs. Let's talk a little bit about where we are now, though, because this morning, uh, front page of Telegraph, fast as planned for new lockdowns unravels. Um, it seems a bit of a storm in a teacup for me, this one. But but again, it sort of it leads you to believe that there's nobody really in government taking a firm grip of what is going to happen next. I think so. And of course, Sage are just, you know, crying out for more lockdowns and more restrictions. You know, um, we've had 
uh, for the past uh, few weeks, every time these new variants have emerged, Sage saying, oh, it's a disaster, we mustn't lift restrictions. And uh, just the other week when the pubs opened again, people were told, oh, you know, no, no, it'd be a disaster. Mm. Um, there is a, a culture now, I think, in, in our government and amongst uh, those making the decisions on this pandemic for it to, to not end. I think they quite enjoy the power and they quite enjoy the, you know, the, the ability to command people's lives sometimes without even telling them, mm. uh, as was uh, found last week. Yeah. Um, but you're right on the question of the plan. Um, it seems to me that the, the plan is June the 21st, all being well, we go back to normal uh, with some restrictions. But what are we going to do to ensure that in the future, when a pandemic like this occurs, we've got control of it nice and quickly, we can't have as an option permanently shutting down the economy no. uh, just because of an illness. People's lives have been destroyed this past year. Yeah. And so alternatives really need to be sourced. And I hope uh, that government are really looking at this uh, as we move towards the end, hopefully, yes. of this lockdown period. But do you also, like me, slightly fear the sage kind of bounce, if you like, that these people, having got themselves in with their feet very finely, finely under the table, aren't going to be shifted very quickly, and they'll be consulted on all manner of things. So we'll basically have... I mean, I've always worried that we've had it going on for a while anyway. All these kind of behavioural scientists nudging people in particular directions to do particular things that the government wants them to do. Right. Well, we, we talk about long COVID. I think we probably are going to experience long sage. Um, they're <laughs> going to be around and they're not going to go away. Uh, and they'll be writing articles in The Guardian yes. and in The Independent and other papers telling us all how we're you know, being terribly irresponsible. Um, what is concerning is, as you say, um, the behavioural aspects of all this. There, there is a feeling that, you know, if you, now if you don't wear a mask, you're a bad person. Yeah. If you're planning to go on holiday, you're not doing your duty, mm. you should be staying at home. Uh, if you want to get back to work, well, you're risking people's lives. Well, I'm sorry, day-to-day -day life has got to return, uh, if for nothing else than to deal with the huge mental health crisis in the country, the huge obesity crisis mm. in the country, not to mention the, the huge trauma that the economy has taken over the past year. Um, we cannot allow these people to dominate. And I hope um, that backbenchers on the Conservative side and indeed people on the Labour side will start standing up for business in this country and saying to Sage, you know, clear off and find your onions. Yeah, well, exactly right. Uh, because at the end of the day, um, normality will only return to the high street once people are going into shops normally. Uh, it will only return to the cities of this country when people are going to work normally, um, as, as if uh, uh, it was the, the case about 18 months ago. Uh, and there's still an awful lot of that work to be done. No, quite right. I mean, at the moment, the high streets are only part back. Um, pubs are saying they need the 21st of June uh, deadline and the one metre rule to be abolished uh, so they can break even and keep surviving. And um, the government are still borrowing hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds every day mm. uh, to keep some people still on furlough and to keep some people um, from not uh, being as business was prior to the start of the lockdown, not to mention the huge stimulus the government's had to take because of shutting down the economy. And this is going to have direct repercussions on people's taxation, on government and local government and individual spending power. Of course, the government have said there are going to be tax rises, which are wholly irresponsible uh, at a time like this. If anything, we need to be cutting taxes to give people more money uh, to boost the economy. Um, so it is a really perilous situation, uh, Mike, and I fear... Uh, that the government 
is really not looking at this in the serious way mm. it ought to. No, none of which, of course, will be pay, uh, those points will be made by uh, your leader, Sir Keir Starmer, later on when he gets up in Prime Minister's questions because uh, he's more concerned with appearing on television these days, it seems. <laughs> well, I gather he's done an interview with uh, Piers Morgan yeah. that's coming out in June. Um, I think uh, what we need to do as a Labour Party, Mike, as I've said many, many, many times on this show, is stop self-indulging in issues that are not important, get out there, listen to people, focus on winning the support of business, of people that want to get on in life, own their own homes. We need to be strong on defence, strong on law and order, and stop talking about things that don't matter to everyday mm. people and have some discipline in our party and understand there's no such thing as public money. It comes from taxpayers and from businesses, and we've got to be prudent and sensible as a Labour Party. And when we start doing that, we'll be back on track. Absolutely right. Very well said. Brendan Chilton, the acceptable face of the Labour Party there. He's CEO of the Independent Business Network as well. Tonya Buxton is here. Tonya, welcome back. Good morning. Thank you very much for being here. It's always nice to see a smiling face, <laughs> somebody who's not throwing somebody else under the bus, somebody you- who's not betraying their boss. Do you know what amazes me? We've said this before so many times that in any other job, if you'd lied and get given the falsities that this government and their advisors mm. have given over this period of time, you'd be out on your ear. You would be sacked. Yeah. And yet these people are still in jobs. They're still continuing. I know. I mean, how many times have you seen Matt Hancock making statements, doing press briefings, even in the House of Commons being asked a specific question and saying something straight out, which turns out not to be the case and turns out to be something that they say they're not going to do, but then they end up doing. A complete lie. Yeah. Yeah. In other words. Yeah. I mean, they lie. Mm. That's it. I mean, and, and this is the thing that kind of blows my mind every time. They lie and they still sit there and they, it gets brushed under the carpet and they continue. But, it, well, one of the lies is uh, about these masks, yeah. actually, yeah. Uh, Mike. And it's something that's driving me insane. So I've done a deep dive into masks. Okay. And um, so I'm just going to go across the board on it. So from what I gather, from what I can read in all the studies I've read, I am not, before anybody comes at me at Twitter, no, I'm not a doctor, I'm not melody qualified but I have a brain and I can read yes and that's what I've been doing and also doing. you can read what doctors have to say I mean Absolutely. one of the things I say to people when they say to me well, what do you know about it well I'd spend my entire life talking to people who know an awful lot about an awful lot of stuff yeah and therefore I- I'm quite well informed Exactly. And so, and I've been talking to a lot of doctors, actually, mm. and they've said to me that the one time that, that a mask does work are the medical grade ones that you use, say, in a surgery environment, yes. surgical environment, where they don't touch it, it goes on for a, a period of time that they're operating and it comes right. off. They, yeah. they, then masks And it has work. maybe a filter or something. It's got a better right? filter and all of this stuff. Um, we've got to go into the cloth masks. Mm. Now, the cloth masks, forget them. They yes. don't work at all against the virus. The only thing a cloth mask will do is if you're one of these vile people that sneezes loudly without covering your... Yeah. mouth or coughs mm. openly without covering your hands mm. they will cause a little block like your hands would cause yes. to stop it from going everywhere right. so that's the cloth moss just they are literally but i don't know what wet. they're I mean, about you know they get wet they get damp actually they pass on the virus because what happens is people don't you know wash them often enough they wear them for too long they right. touch their hands with them and if they if you are ill and you're going out with a mask on and you're putting the virus into your mask and then touching the mask mm. constantly and then touching places you're actually making yeah. it much worse so forget the cloth mask also can we just say because right at the beginning of this conversation because there will be people going oh you're you're you know you're telling people lies you're telling people dangerous things no the human face was not meant to be covered no. right we are not fish we do not have gills right so therefore we need our mouth and our nose in order to breathe apart from the fact that we need to show expression 
So, you know, it's an unnatural act to put a mask on. It's really unnatural act to put a mask on. And the so the disposable ones, the one-wear ones... Like um, those little I, blue ones. Those little blue ones that everyone is wearing now, um, they, they have gaps everywhere. So mm. They don't prevent a virus from crossing over to somebody mm. else. So once we've kind of got that right. But what they are doing now, these masks, and I've been reading the studies, it's horrendous. They are killing our wildlife. Mm. They are polluting our seas to an extent that we... It will take us... 500 years to recover mm. from the waste that's going into sea. So uh, I, I read that at the end of 2020, um, 100, uh, 1 billion, no, one and a half billion face masks have been fished out of the sea. They're mm. the ones that have been fished out. How the do sea. they get into the sea? Because it always worries me that, that somebody's dumping this stuff somewhere. Well, it, th there is a big problem. People aren't putting them in the bin properly, right. so that's one thing. But even those that are disposed of properly, if it's medical-grade masks mm. or they're medical masks, they have to go into a landfill site. They can't be... Um, recycled in right. the same way so you know that they are bad across the board right. and there's some really crazy facts that something like a, a two billion masks are used every week in mm. the world right. two billion masks that where, sounds, where are they that going sounds about right yeah where are they going where presumably are they going? they're also made of plastic they've got they? plastics in them yeah. and what's happened is with those plastics that they go into the sea they go into the rivers they go into the wildlife and they have to break down it mm. takes about 450 years for them to break down completely oh, great. <laughs> and, just the 450 but years. it's not that it's just that as with all plastics mm. when they break down they become microplastics and so I'm going to come back into the wildlife they're killing but those microplastics will then affect the food chain across the board they yeah. become so tiny that you cannot escape them and we still don't know what plastics do when we ingest them mm. I mean we've there's some pretty horrifying know, I mean, studies you're a chef we do know an awful lot of the fish that, that yeah. gets caught in around, yeah. around the world's seas and the world's oceans full of plastic is full of plastic full of plastic knows what you do to plastic when you cook it for example i mean if i put a sea bass you know under a grill and it's in, it's ingested a load of plastic what is it doing to the plastic well they're linking the linking carcinogenic yeah. effects with plastics so you know so you're eating this fine particles that mm. the fish is, that are in the fish because the fish ate the fine particles right. of plastics and and it, it seems to be like a kind of time bomb for cancer right so which we know we, a lot less about actually than covid to be absolutely honest. a lot less about it but the the just simple things like when you're seeing these seagulls that are caught up mm. in the masks or you're seeing um, chimpanzees in, in or little monkeys in Gibraltar eating yeah. the masks Turtles and, as and well. turtles and yeah. and all the marine life everything is suffering because of masks mm. so i really do think that we need to take a really good look onto the efficacy of masks mm. and we know that they don't really work yeah. you know if you're going to well if you're going to sneeze take some tissues mm. and cover your nose yes. or if you're going to cough cover your mouth with your hands that right. does the same as pretty much a mask is it does also, at the moment do you think a kind of it's become this kind of comfort blanket for people as if it's the answer you know because they've been told and here we are listening to dominic cummings describing the secretary of state for health as a liar yeah right a man who's probably advocated the use of masks yep. uh, despite the fact that dominic cummings calls him a liar um, and so here we are, where people believe that if they wear a mask, it somehow makes them safer. Makes them safer and also makes them look better. Mm. You know, like, I really care about you, so I'm wearing a mask. But actually, I feel that anyone, I mean, I, I think the mask mandate needs to be lifted tomorrow, mm. today. Yeah. That's not going to happen. It's supposed to be lifted on the 21st of June. And my thing is, is that anybody who's wearing a mask after the 21st of June really doesn't care about our planet. Mm. Really, really doesn't care yeah. about the wildlife, the animals, the seas, the food we're eating, the food chain. It, it makes them... And we have to care about polluting the nation. Yeah. COVID is a, a conversation that needs to stop yeah. now. And we need to come back to all the other things that are causing problems in yes. this world. And also, if it was 
safeguarding people to wear a mask, then why would they stop wearing them in schools? Why would they have told the schools that they now no longer have to wear them? Because clearly, if that was the case, then that's dangerous. But it well, isn't dangerous because is it? they know that, that children don't really pass on COVID. It's a whole. It's a. It's it's again. It's a. It's part of the scaremongering. Mm. If you know, we, we've talked so often yeah. about Laura Dodsworth's book and a state of fear. And and every time I'm I'm, I'm reading it and I reread it, and every time I read it, I think, gosh, you know, I'm be, I've been played here yeah. a little bit. And so the pro- the problem that's happened during this 15, 16 months is that people don't believe the government anymore. When I was a naive little thing that if my prime minister or my government told me something, I thought it was for the Mm. good of me and the good of my children. So I followed it blindly. Now they've been proved again and again and again to be liars. They lie to us. So I don't trust them. And I don't trust them when it comes to my kids. But you know, I I think what's also happened is that we've waited a long time for this moment. And Dominic Cummings describing what was going on in Downing Street in March. And it sounds chaotic. It doesn't sound like they even were thinking about telling lies, that they were constructing them. It just sounds as though they didn't really know what to do. And so when they did decide to do something, they thought, well, we better tell everybody why, because otherwise they won't believe us. So then they just started making stuff up. Well, exactly. But all those years of pandemic um, planning... Preparation. Preparation. Yeah. So millions of pounds went into that. Mm. that. That just went out the window. Yeah. That just stopped. Yeah. Because... Well, be- because in the end, you know, it's no matter how much you try... You know, we've all been involved in startup businesses, right? Yeah. You know, you could pretend what it's going to be like in a restaurant until the opening night. And then when the opening night comes, it's nothing like what you've been doing. Oh, God. Same I've here. been there. I know right? that. <laughs> of course, right? And you go, oh, my God. You know, we've done it in radio. You know, let's start up a, a radio station. OK, then. What are we going to do for the next month? We're going to have dry runs. We're going to do shows. Mm. And we're going to see if we can know what it's going to be like. You can't know what it's going to be like until the red light goes on in broadcasting and it all starts falling apart. I do. But just a, I wish they'd given their, their planning a, at least a, a, a moment to try Mm. before jumping in into lockdowns which for me you know in my life if you everyone has a a kind of life that they lead so it was what how what did Megan call it her truth so this is my my truth yeah you're allowed to say that my truth (laughs) so my truth is that I I know people that have killed themselves I know young sons who are on suicide watch I know young girls who are having serious eating disorders yeah. and psychological problems I know people who've lost their businesses and I my mother my mother-in-law hello Sophie if you're listening had a big operation yesterday for cancer oh, because good. it was overlooked okay. and it went to stage four because we couldn't get an appointment mm. so this is my truth during lockdown yeah I know one person unfortunately that died of COVID which was really sad but he had lots of illnesses and I'm not saying that you know mm. that people haven't lots of people have died of it but my truth is that it's the collateral damage yeah. of lockdown lots of people also so much died harm. Of it. Though. Lots of people have had it and recovered. Well, I did. And, and we while, did. My whole family yeah, did. Yeah. And while, of course, you know, we're not going to say that. I mean, Dominic Cummings is rather bizarrely. One of the things he did this morning was apologise for the unnecessary deaths uh, that resulted from mistakes made in government. Now, I'm not sure what he gains by saying that because he was part of the, the, the team it. of people that made the mistakes. Yeah. But you know, the fact remains that most of the people who died um, were older, were in hospitals, were in care homes, and unfortunately, you know it affected them a lot worse than it affected everybody else. And most people who went into hospital came out alive. Yeah. And in the end, that's the reality. And you can't any longer just go, COVID bad, everything else has to just be put on hold. Because that's not how to run society, is it? It's not, especially when there's such collateral damage, Mike. Mm. And, I, and I, I come in here every week and I harp on about this. But, you know, for me, it's all about the mental health and the psychology of our children. Yeah. Now, I, I, you know, that mother that I know 
who lost her 19-year-old son because he was so depressed by the fear-mongering, by he went to university and it almost locked in. Mm. You know, her son's never coming back. Yeah. And lockdown caused that, not COVID. No. And so that's what, that are the conversations I want to have. You know, what are you going to do about the mm. damage you inflicted upon us yes. because of these decisions you decide in order to, uh, to prevent a virus from going around? they would rather you didn't ask those questions because they would rather that you were uh, in, in some way, um, you know, painted as a mad creature um, who doesn't care about people dying and that was their narrative towards throughout. all throughout last year you know anyone including us at this radio station you know if you were questioning them they were coming at you and saying you are an enemy of the state you are basically somebody who doesn't care about humanity you're an evil individual um, and you must believe what we're saying well even Dominic Cummings is now calling them all liars it's insane isn't it it really yeah. is and this thing is up because I've had it from very very early on you know because I've got four children, I could start to see the psychological mm. damages being done because How are they of lockdown. Because last week you sounded <sighs> like you were a bit worried about them. I was, um, um, especially my youngest, and yeah. I still am, and we still are issues, and we're going to have to deal with these issues for a long time to come. Mm. And that's just the way it is. And I think I'm no different from any other family having to deal with the damage that lockdown, lockdown has done yes. psychologically right. with kids, and the the and also the fear factor. So my, mine are kind of teenagers and up, mm. but um, I've, the new report came out on Monday about children under ten. And the damage that's being done to them, yeah. uh, the fear mongering, the mask wearing, so they can't see people's right. expressions. So you imagine a, a six-month-old baby. You know, their their whole life is to make eye contact yeah. with you, so you smile at them, so they can see your reaction. Mm. So this is having dulling effects on all these young babies mm. that haven't seen anybody. Also, and when, when you look, when you look at a child of ten. You know, one year in their life is a long time. long time. You know, it's different yeah. for us because we're a bit older. I mean, in my case, it's very different. But, you know, when, when you're talking about a five-year-old, you know, yeah. a fifth of their life has been spent probably behind a mask. Their yeah. parents are wearing masks. Everybody's wearing masks. And I was talking to a doctor the other day because, you know, I've been banging on about GPs and how they need to get back to treating Absolutely. people properly. Yeah. And I'm sorry to say that the guy who came on from the BMA was not very encouraging. And what he said, and I said to him, because I wanted to find out what he made of the whole mask situation. I said, you know, you can't, he says he can't get enough people into the waiting rooms because of the COVID restrictions and social distancing and all that. And I said, well, come June the 21st, if they say you now don't have to do that, will you be running... Um, a, a GP surgery in the same way as it was run two years ago, i.e. people in the, in, mm. the, in the waiting room, no masks, no social distancing. He said, oh, well, we'll have to wait and see what the evidence is. But what, what, what evidence? What? Evidence of what? So should we go through the numbers again? And he um, literally said, um, basically, it was a bit, patients were a bit of an inconvenience to doctors, you know, and we'd rather they didn't have to deal with them because, you know, he doesn't want people coming into the surgery who aren't, uh, who aren't uh, very well. And you're kind of going... Sorry. Sorry. You're a GP, right? The people coming to see you are coming to see you because they're sick. They're going to have to sit in a waiting room. You know, I've sat in many waiting rooms with my kids mm -hmm. thinking to myself, I'm going to come out of here with some yes. kind of horrendous, yes. you know, bug. Yes. And I always kind of get home and sort of blow my nose. And yeah. try to get but, you know, that's that, that's the risk you run when you go to the doctor. You can't say, don't come to the waiting room if you've got something wrong with you. It's, it's bizarre. A, it is really, really bizarre. I mean, I have to, on the on the good thing, though, there are some really good GP surgeries. I, yes, I, I've, I I've had that. absolutely polar differences. So, as we said, with my mother-in-law surgery, um, 
Squires Lane. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been horrific. We couldn't get through to anybody. We couldn't speak to anybody. She couldn't see anybody. It was, and even to this day, trying to get some of the medications that she needs, right. I, I have to email, because my mother-in-law can't email, mm-hmm. and it takes them days to get back to me. And this is on email. Right. And whereas my surgery, um, Dr. Patel, you're out there, um, at the Wentworth, he, he comes back to me. He's he, they're, they're trying their best. He said that the, the government have said they want 30% yeah. of it to be... a uh, um, Online, online, yeah, and so and, and that's okay, that. and that's I mean, fine. Nobody but minds that, but nobody does. But, but if you need to see somebody, you, you should be allowed them. to see them. Absolutely, I completely agree with that because you know we are kind of feeling at our wits' end, mm. and so you know our, this whole panic that we have. So you have a little cough somewhere, and you think, oh my god, is it, what is it? You know, and wh- why would I worry if my son coughs? You mm. know, he's thirteen years old. We've all had COVID at home anyway, yeah. but even if he got COVID, so what? Yeah, and and it's this getting reduction of fear on COVID, and actually we need to heighten our fear mm. of what's coming in the future and that's when we need our GPs. No because you know what I, I'm firmly of the belief that as we uh, take less precautions and I'm quite happy to admit that I do take less precautions now because I don't see why I shouldn't. Um, you know I know a lot of people some of it's hay fever related but mm. I, I know a lot of people with, with coughs and sniffles and things it's not Covid no. it's because they're now mixing with more people they're going out a little bit more they're going to pubs and sitting down they're going to restaurants and they're picking up bugs because that's what happens but you have an immune system which hasn't really been fighting anything for about a year so naturally you might be getting a little bit sicker now um, than you were before but it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that absolutely um, I used to be a primary school teacher mm. in Tottenham um, and you know from September pretty much till Christmas yeah I had one virus or another because you know the kids were sneezing on me and coughing mm. on me and whatever and so you know you've, you've got that six weeks off in the yeah. summer you get really healthy and you get really well and you come back bang 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 yeah. and then actually I'd be quite resilient for the rest of the year yes that's because right. you know your immune and system most parents are the same most yeah. parents particularly when my kids were in like nursery school and, and, and primary school you know, yeah, all the time you would have something going on yeah. because they, there would always be some kid with some horrendous stomach ailment or, you know, gastroenteritis or something like that. And it's just what we do. But I'm, I'm really worried about the kind of 18-month-old and mm. playgroups because I used to take my children to these playgroups when they were kind of year, year and a half. And it was always quite filthy. And they ended up licking the toys and licking the floor. And, you know, goodness knows what germs they were getting. But that was building them right. up. These, this group of 18 month old or year old so 18 months haven't done any of that mm. and even now in play groups they're really sanitizing everything so i i wonder how their immune system is going to cope in the future mm. yeah right how are you feeling about cyprus how's that coming along is there anything on the we're horizon? amber at the moment i'm hoping that's going to turn to green there's no reason there's no good reason there is no covid in cyprus greece is very low well the greek um, islands we're being told in the telegraph this morning could be next on the green yeah. list so that might include i mean it certainly includes roads call through crete Canary Islands, um, COS. So, yeah, so that Cyprus hopefully well. Cyprus will be in that. There is no reason. I have to go. I haven't seen my parents. As I told you, my mum has got dementia. Yes. And it's in the reason that it's got it's excelled so quickly is because of isolation mm. and because of lockdown. Yeah. I have to go and see her. So I will be going, whatever yeah. happens. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm sort of... I'll I'm, do the show from Cyprus. Absolutely great, absolutely <laughs> fine. I mean, get the old uh, Zoom cameras out all over the swimming pool, be fine. No, I'm, just, I'm in the same boat with New York because, you know, my, my sense is that uh, New York is going to be open at some point before August, I hope. But I was talking to my sister who lives over there and she went into Manhattan and she said, you know, the whole centre of Manhattan, where I used to live and, you know, Midtown around Rockefeller Centre, she used to work there. None of the restaurants there are open purely and simply because an awful lot of them depended upon the kind of expense account lunch and the expense account dinner. And there's nobody in the offices. So some of the neighbourhoods like the Upper West Side, plenty of outdoor cafes, lots of people, you know, hanging around because it's all residents. But in Midtown Manhattan, one of the engine rooms of capitalism in the world, 
it's just completely deserted. It's decimated. Yeah. Completely decimated. And a lot of places aren't coming back. Well, you can't, you know, when you, when you, when, especially if you're an independent, it's different mm. if you're a part of a big group, but if you're an independent, you can't, you, you, you're not resilient enough to be able to take this knock. No. It's too much. And, and in the, I presume in the centre of London it's the same because the West End is also still relatively deserted. I mean, Soho, I think, is coming back a bit. But Soho's a bit buzzier, Covent yeah. Garden's still quite quiet, I think. It's isn't quiet. It? Because, and the city's dead. Yeah. And so all of those really expensive restaurants on really expensive sites mm. with high rents presumably are just sitting there waiting to close i think they've negotiated better rent deals and things like that but it's not enough mm. it's not enough and i think they will close once furlough's over when is furlough over mike it keeps shunting well, I think I, i'm it's the losing end of september isn't it so why why is it the end of september i don't know why can't we just start getting back to normal and, mm. and give kind of step up grants rather than furlough money mm. let's have grants to help people get back into business yeah. rather than pay, being paid to stay home. Well, this is the problem. You know, we don't wish to live in a world where you're paid to do nothing. I mean, I certainly don't. If somebody said to me, how about you stay home every day? We'll give you the same money. You don't do a radio show. I'd be like, no, I don't want to do that. That causes depression. You well, know yeah, that. That's it, why we have such a, a huge amount of depression. And I quite like my own company. You know, but, <laughs> yeah. but, I, but I want a job. You yeah. know, I need to do a job. I yeah. mean, if it wasn't this job, I would find another job. Yeah. You know, if it meant actually going and making coffee in a coffee shop, I'd do that rather than sitting at home. Because we're creatures of, you know, sociability. We're not supposed to be sitting on our own. That's the big thing. It's it's the socialising of people. It's the seeing of people. And and I I was at a uh, I was in the jazz cafe last night, mm. and uh, watched a lovely girl called Lola Young. Absolutely amazing voice. And we all had to sit at our tables. Right. Uh, and it was it was tough. It was tough because really everyone wanted to just get yeah, up get and, up and dance, dance around yeah. and, and give her other, and yeah. hug each other and yeah. go. And so you know the. They were trying to keep everybody seated at their tables and most people kind of we complied as best as we could. But it's not natural. No. It's just not natural. It's no. not what you want to be doing. You mm. want to be... And I'm Greek. I'm even more tactile than the normal person, <laughs> you know. Turkey plates, presumably. Yeah, chucks and plates and yeah. do some hugging and kiss cheeks on both sides yeah. and, and smile and see joy. I mean, these are the things that we've got to really make an effort mm. to bring back into the country. Mm. Everyone's so worried all the time. And if they're not worried, they're angry. They're yeah. the two emotions that I'm picking up so much yes. when I'm out on the street. And so I, I spend my time most of the time like some crazy woman smiling grinning ear to ear to yeah. people who are frowning at me right. and I'm smiling away thinking come on give me some love yeah. back you know and I think that will move and that will change and I think in you know the next even next time I see you with each week that goes by yeah. I think more and more people are moving to your side of the conversation but wouldn't it be lovely if the government just listened to this show I mean they might be a bit busy now with Cummings but and listen coming up with the next live this <laughs> yeah and just decided <laughs> let's get rid of the masks now yeah just if not for because we know they don't work with the virus but they are killing the planet mm. so it, come on let's just if everybody who's listening today can just you know send a note to their mp or get on twitter and just let's get rid of masks yeah. that's a real Listen, big thing i would for say me. this though if somebody wants to wear one i don't have a massive problem with that you know i mean i was talking to one of my my, my youngest the other day because they're obviously now no longer wearing masks in school mm -hmm. uh, i said is anybody wearing them he said there's like two kids in his class who are still wearing a mask presumably because they want to or their parents want them to but they're not being forced to do it and if they want to do that you know i i'm a bit libertarian about that you know i, I take your i take your point and it's good that we disagree every now and again but i would say look if you want to wear one wear one but you know it may or may not be doing any good anyway I don't agree with you. I really do think that past the 21st of June, when we don't have to wear these masks, yeah. okay, if you're wearing them, you're not thinking about the planet. Okay. And you have to wear that up because it's not helping with the virus. And we don't have COVID rampant in, no. in the UK. You know, I, I, it's, it's single figures, not even. It's under fives yeah. that are dying, much, much less than are dying of cancer and heart disease.
heart disease mm. and sepsis and all the other horrible things that we have in, in the world. Um, and if you're continuing to wear a disposable mask, then you are not caring for the planet. And you should be, you know, you should be answerable to that. And if you want to wear a cloth mask, well, then, you know, I don't understand that at all. Yeah. I can't get my head around can't that one you. at all. It doesn't do anything. I can't help you. I'll give up on that one. <laughs> but disposable masks must stop. They must stop. They're a big buck money-making industry and it needs to stop there mm. if you you know put your money into something else into helping people put yeah. your money into mental health charities yeah. stop buying masks stop it okay tonya buxton thank you very much indeed strong words from tonya but that's why she's here the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio Right now, though, uh, we're going to talk to ex-BBC producer and author of several books about the BBC, John Mayer. Uh, he's asking a question. Is the BBC in peril? John, a very good afternoon to you. Hello, Mike. Uh, hello, Mike. Last seen you since we had dinner and the Grouch Show together. That was a very long time ago. Well, well remembered. How nice to see you. How are you doing? You were, do- you were, you were talking about Brexit, remember, to the Media Society. Yes, I do. I remember it well, with, with Matt Kelly. With Matt Kelly, that's right. Uh, yes. I let the two- each other yes um, no absolutely right now i mean you're a man that knows a thing or two about the beeb it's not been a great week for them has it no no this is, this is not the bbc's proudest moment the bbc is in a deep crisis in terms of bbc crises this is this is a big big one but yeah. you know that the, the press are, are like hyenas in charge of a wounded wildebeest moment they're really so going for it but why why are all the usual suspects going for the bbc what don't they like? One rogue reporter, 100 years of solid history coming up. You know, the, the, the BBC will survive, and it will, and, and, it, uh, and it will survive only by changing, but it will survive. The, the new director general is, is, uh, is good news. He, he takes decisions, takes them quickly, and they don't involve cover-ups. Yes. Well, let's hope that's true. We're going to just try and get your line slightly better, John, because it's a little bit uh, fuzzy and it's a little bit interference ridden. So let's try and get that slightly better. One of the things I've been saying all week in the wake of this uh, uh, Martin Bashir documentary that was done by the BBC about their own Panorama programme um, is that uh, clearly there was a problem and it was a long time ago. But there was also a more recent problem uh, which came out in 19, uh, 2016 when Bashir was rehired basically, uh, by Tony Hall to be the religious affairs correspondent and to be the ethics correspondent. And at the end of the day, you know, that is a lot more recent than anything that people say happened 26 years ago. So I, I think you're right, the BBC will survive this. But the question really is, how will it survive it? And how will it be changed? And how will it be altered? And which bits of it uh, will become less important? Because I think in the end, they need to work out what it is that they want to do. You know, is the BBC a news organisation uh, which has an awful lot of very skillful and, and very well-talented journalists who actually do news stories and who do documentaries and who do investigations? Or is it a kind of entertainment company which does things like Strictly, which does things like making um, period dramas, which does things like making quiz shows, you know, which outsources lots of its um, producers to private companies who then come back in and sell them something back? You know, exactly what kind of um, competition are they expecting in the next few years and exactly which bits of their empire, if you like, cannot be uh, competitive anymore. And I think that is a problem um, that they will have to face and that they will have to uh, look at changing, don't you think? I'm hoping he's there. He's not there. We'll come, we'll come back to John in a second. It was just a very unfortunate line uh, that we were talking about there because um, John is a former BBC producer. He's written an awful lot of books about the BBC. Uh, John, I think we've got you back. 
You have. You got me back on. on, on, on yeah. Sorry about road, that. Yeah. It was just a very. There was a lot right. of interference online. I was just saying, really, that you know, I've been I've been talking a lot about the BBC, obviously, in the last week or so. The problem, it seems to me, is is that you know, I'll take your word for Tim Davy being the guy to sort it out. But is he not going to have to look quite carefully at the way the whole organisation is structured and start to think about the bits that they like, the bits that they're good at, and the bits that really do need reforming? Yes, I mean, the BBC has 19,000 employees, which is probably too many. Mm. You know, it needs to look at what it does and what it does best. And, and it has to think in terms of you know, what, what can be done better by other people. You know, the World Service, for example, should be totally financed by the Foreign Office, yeah. not by a license fee, because it's part of soft power. Mm. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm an anti-elitist, so I don't tend to be in favour of keep, keeping the orchestras and keeping Radio 3, I'm afraid, because they cost an awful lot yeah. of money. Right. You know, it's head for the popular things. And also, the, 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 ITV has abandoned local broadcasting, uh, so indeed has radio. So, you know, uh, keep local radio, but also keep the jewels in the crown. The, jewels, the BBC will survive if it makes bloody good programmes, which are watched by an awful lot of people. Mm. Lots more lines of duty. Please. Yes. Well, would you say, though, as well, that there will have to be um, a few people hung out to dry? Because I think there is definitely a thirst for uh, for blood in the in the air at the moment or in the water, whichever way you want to say it. And whether or not that's fair, I think it's going to have to happen. They can't just let go of people who don't work there anymore. You know, it's all very well Tony Hall leaving his job at the National Gallery, but he's not at the BBC anymore. Similarly, the bloke who left Ofcom, not at the BBC. Do you not think there's going to have to be a couple more sacrificial lambs? Yes, there will. I mean, there is a saying in the BBC that, you know, there is an inquiry and an assistant head's role. And lots of assistant heads will roll, and there's certainly one one been targeted at the moment who are better not thinking. But you know who the you know who the who the press are after for rehiring Bashir, yes. which which was a gross gross mistake, mm. which could only only have been approved by T- Tony Hall somewhere along the line. Mm. That, 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 that that's a stupid own goal to do that. You know? Yes, they, they, they should let it be. Yeah, they yes, sh- they should. Be, and and also the other problem that I've, that has popped up today in the papers is that Martin Bashir is still being paid, even though he resigned from the job and he's on a three month sort of um, working out of his contract. Now, in my experience, I don't know about yours, John, yours may be different, but when I've ever worked for a media company, um, I've never resigned. I've always been fired. Uh, I'm quite proud of that. And they've always paid me off. But if you do resign, um, you don't walk away generally with any money. You just go. You just go. So why is he still being paid? Well, no, he's got a contract. Come on, the BBC's got to honour his contract. His contract says three months' notice. Three months' notice, it is. You know, so I think. Well, they don't have to honour it if he's been in breach of that contract, which I think you could probably easily argue that he was. They didn't fire him. He resigned. Remember, he resigned before he was fired. And Tim Davy yesterday told us today programme the reason why he accepted the resignation. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't like to be Martin Bashir. I don't think he's got much of a career left, and I also think. Personally, he's probably in total turbulence, apart from, apart from his health. But the BBC will survive. It'll, you know, it has to survive. This, this is a national broadcaster, mm. you know, and, 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 and respected all over the world, absolutely all over the world. So it, 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 will, it, will, it will have to, to, to track and tra- to attack a little bit. Yes. You know, t- well, the problem, I think the problem, John, for the BBC is that it is respected around the world, partly because the World Service is still a very good and, and true to its original purpose service. However, it's not very well respected at home. There was a, a, a survey done, I think, just last year. Only 6% of people trust BBC News. Yes, until until it came until it came to the COVID pandemic. When, when what did they switch on? What what did, where did they go to find information? They went to the BBC. 
Well, a lot of them come to talk radio, I have to tell you, John, because they don't want to watch the BBC anymore, but that's another story. This is true. But, you know, you, you've got the BBC which swims in a, in a pond full of, uh, uh, of piranhas called the National Press. Yeah. The National Press hate the BBC. Of course they do, because as far as they're concerned, the BBC is the enemy. You know, the, right. the, so, but also, uh, it's, I guess, a two-way street, John, because the people who work inside a broadcasting house are also not that keen on the National Press, and they're also not that keen on a lot of people in this country either. They, no, they, they are, uh, the second part, not one except they plagiarise the national press. You know, you know, if it's if it's in the Daily Mail uh, today, it'll be on the BBC um, uh, later on today. I mean, I am, I, uh, I, I live in Oxford, and what, what you find is, is, if it appears in the Oxford Mail on Tuesday, it usually appears on on the BBC on mm. Wednesday or maybe even Thursday or Friday. Yeah. So it, it is it is plagiarised, but you know there is there is an uneasy relationship. But the, the press has to accept. The BBC is there, it's going to continue to be there, and, you know, it, it doesn't have to love it, but it has to accept it. Mm. And the BBC, in return, has to be honest and upright, and, and, and if it has rogue reporters, get rid of them. Yeah. And do you think it also should kind of pare back a little bit some of its other um, uh, apparent sort of, you know, entertainment uh, exercises, for example, loads no, of shows, uh, loads of shows that they produce. I don't think they should be producing because they're not necessarily public interest television. They're just, you know, they're just glamorous kind of, you know, celebrity-led like fests. Like, well, like Strictly. I don't know why the BBC makes Strictly. It makes no sense to me. Because because the BBC invented Strictly, the BBC, it's now a massively massively popular popular program. You know, so that's exactly what the BBC should be doing. Yeah, but it's not what they're for, is it? What, what, what's that, Mike? I don't, I don't think it's, it's what the BBC is for. The BBC is not for well, making massively successful television um, uh, you know, shows, is it? It is. The BBC is a universal service to universal people. And, you know, if you're going to extract 160 quid from, from people, you must give them something in return. And when the BBC does entertainment programmes well, it does them brilliantly well. But it also can do them pretty badly as well. Yeah, of course, they all do. I mean, you know, but if you if you stood the BBC up against, say, ITV's entertainment at the moment, there's really no comparison. Even Channel yeah. Four. When when did you last watch a Channel Four entertainment program? Yeah, well, that's the problem. But my worry about both Channel Four and the BBC is that they're both subsidised by, by by license fee payers and by taxpayers, and so it's a it's an unfair. Uh, uh, scenario. You talk about piranhas swimming in the lake. The thing about the BBC is they own the lake. And they can put people out there with guns to shoot the piranhas because they're in charge of everything. Yeah, but that's called public service broadcasting. That's a tradition we've had for hundred years. <laughs> yeah, we have. But now, but now, but, but even you, John, would agree surely that we're in a very different area. We're in a very different landscape. Talk Radio uh, is now basically a TV channel. Uh, you're going to get a new TV channel starting up shortly uh, in GB News. You're going to have um, a continual, um, uh, you know, invasions from people like Netflix, from Disney, from Amazon, from you know, uh, subscription services. The BBC is not really any longer the only fish in the sea. Which is why we need the BBC to keep us all honest. Well, it's not the greatest week. It's not the greatest week, John, to proclaim the BBC to be honest, is it? Oh, but you know, the BBC is there should be there as an exemplar. You know, they they are there. You know, people people went to the BBC during the pandemic. That's where they got their information from. Yeah, and a lot of it wasn't very good because they were just parroting what the government was giving them. Well, that's true, but you know, there were... We've just had Dominic Cummings saying that the BBC and the media were woeful. Uh, He's just accused the health secretary of being a liar, you know. He has, I I, I thought... I mean, you know, this this could change everything. He's only on session two or four sessions at the moment. I know. This this show's going on, I've got got, 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 it on in the background. No, 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 look... 
the BBC has to be trusted. It has to be impartial. Most uh, 99% of the time, it is that. But another thing you should remember as well is that Diana wanted to do that bloody interview. She, you know, she she tapped up Max Hastings. Yeah. She tapped up the BBC. So, you know, uh, all right, uh, uh, Bashir, Bashir, you was pretty diseased for methods. To, to get it, I've read, I've read Dyson's report, but she wanted to do the interview. I mean, any any connection between the interview and her death is, is specious, I'm afraid. Well, I don't agree or, with you actually, because I think yes, she did want to speak out, but she would not have spoken out to Bashir had he not conned her into believing that there was all sorts of stuff going on around her, which she didn't know anything about. She wanted to do that interview because Charles had already done one with Dimbleby at Panorama, so she wanted to yeah. do something similar. Um, but it's yeah, just so a shame that she didn't do it with Dimbleby. Well, but I said that Dimbley was working for ITV at the time, so yeah. she couldn't. Mm. No, no, but she, 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 she did. I mean, you know, Bashir used some pretty deceitful methods to, to get to it, and then everybody accepts that. And, you know, it, it, it should have gone, should have come clean about it, and the BBC should have come clean when they knew as well. Actually. Well, they did. Well, they did though. That's the that's the thing that I find staggering. That you know, then he was rehired in 2016, having admitted that they they forged documents. You know, it was kind of crazy. But listen, John, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed, John Mayer, ex BBC producer, author of several books about the BBC. Still thinks the BBC is going to survive this wants it to survive wants it to be impartial wants it to be popular you can earn all of that if you want to but right now i would say the bbc is in a pretty bad place and i would say the bbc uh, is under most scrutiny that it's ever been under and quite rightly so talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.